Wow. We've been through the story of Joe and it was, you know, with our 2020, oh man, it's 2020. And I was going to say 2020 hindsight with 2020. I hate this year so much. I hate 2020 so far. Anyway, with everything that's going on, and now that we know who actually killed Dan and Charlene, and we know what they really went through, and honestly, some of that evidence wasn't produced here, but then, of course, they didn't know what they were looking for, and we thought it was just a giant murder in a small town, not knowing it was connecting to anything else. As Ventura starts to come to terms with, wow, we still have an unserved murder, we have a church and chaos. We have a guy who could or could not be charged again. Um, there is an epilogue to the story. So Greg, who who knows the story when he sees one, his first article, and, and we just, these are just definitely epilogue kind of um, coverage now, like now what kind of coverage. He starts on May 23rd with a big story about the missionary church, a congregation under fire. We have been following, this is a, okay, sorry, a little quote that starts, this is a pull quote that starts the story. We've been following very closely the devil's, the devil's sinister attack on you and members of the staff. From the Reverend Leonard DeWitt in a leaflet provided to the members of the Ventura Missionary Church on Sunday, May 9. Woo, I believe Satan has been called forward. Here we go. That communication from the Reverend Leonard DeWitt followed a controversial and for many church members, abhorrent incident the previous Sunday when people tried to serve him with a subpoena to testify in the Ventura murder case. His writing suggests a church under fire, and no doubt the murder case has been an emotional issue for parishioners since the key prosecution witness in a recent recent preliminary hearing was an associate pastor of the church, the Reverend Donald Michael. Church members recently read an almost daily account about extensive efforts to discredit Michael by the attorney representing murder suspect Joseph Alsop Jr. The defense attack dealt with everything from grueling cross-examination about incidences, incidents as much as two years old to evidence suggesting mental abnormalities on Michael's part. Sorry, guys, sometimes these newspaper articles are a little um, old and torn. Michael was a key witness because he and Elsip had made admissions to him about the March 1980 slayings of Venturna wife, Venturi attorney Lyman Smith and his wife Charlene. The prosecution's case rode on that testimony and ultimately fell with it. District Attorney Michael Bradbury announced last week that he was dropping the case against Alsip primarily because Michael's credibility had been severely impeached and his testimony discredited. Both DeWitt, the former head of the congregation, and the soft-spoken Michael are widely loved and respected by church members. It's a very strong church with strong support for their ministers, said Municipal Court Judge Bert Henson, who attends with his wife Harriet, a Ventura councilwoman and former mayor. I think a lot of people view this as an attack on the church and an attack on them, and they're ready to defend themselves and the church with whatever's necessary, he said. But exactly how this huge body of religious believers has weathered the controversy of being tied emotionally and factually to a highly publicized murder case is a question that may not be answerable. A handful of members contacted by the Starfree Press speaking as individuals expressed various conclusions. The congregation has unified because what what has happened? Members are relieved to see it over and are anxious to put it behind them 
or the membership is so broad and politically amorphous that it is difficult for it to register any single reaction. There does, however, seem to be an overriding sense of unhappiness among church members. As a member of the church, I only want the good things to come from the church, so this saddens me, said Mrs. Henson. Meanwhile, church leaders remained silent about the case. Michael, who was urged by church officials to take some time off last week, has been unavailable for comment. The acting head of the church, Reverend Leslie Miller, will not talk about it either. There was a Get Acquainted meeting scheduled between a Starfree Press reporter and Jean Cherry, head of the church's executive board of directors, one other board member, and the church attorney, but it was canceled. Still, there is a glimpse of the thought of at least one leader in the May 9 leaflet written by DeWitt. Alsip's defense team had wanted to subpoena DeWitt the week before it was written to question him about the facts relating to, the, to Michael's testimony wrote DeWitt. Now, this is actually a pull quote from that leaflet. Um, here we go. This is, this is uh, DeWitt's words. I mentioned the weekend was clouded with a note of sadness. We have been following very closely the devil's sinister attack on you and members of the staff. This is to be expected because he knows what a great and dedicated church family you are. I can tell you that the way you have forged ahead since we moved has been a tremendous means of witness and encouragement to the rest of the denomination. Satan would love to divide you, so it's all the more imperative to keep your eyes on the Lord and only him by ministering to each other. Oh man, I had such just a moment there of Dana Carvey being the church lady talking about Satan. There were a number of people present whose goal was to subpoena and drag me into the proceedings rather than permit them to use the premises that have been dedicated to the glory of god in any way they intended i chose to avoid them and voluntarily disappear in court to testify on monday which i did it meant however that i was not able to come to the narthex and greet you on the way i wanted and i felt very cheated this is really why I'm writing this, so that you will understand that I was not avoiding you. As I waited behind closed door, closed doors, my heart was so heavy, I could hardly handle the disappointment of not being out there with you. I hope you can understand what I was going through. That's the end of his quote, his writing. Defense attorney Richard Hanawalt later reported there was some pushing, shoving, and elbowing of his associates as they tried to serve the subpoena. Church officials deny that continued DeWitt, and now this is him speaking again, I want you to know the conduct of those who came to conduct their business in the house of God was downright shameful. I might have expected such treatment when we traveled in Romania and East Germany, but I did not anticipate that such would be the behavior in Ventura. Please be assured that contrary to what you have read or heard, the despicable behavior was on the part of those who came to do anything but worship. Those from the church handled the situation in a very commendable way, and you can be proud of them. Okay, that's the end of his quote. The church on High Point Drive is one of the one of the largest congregations of any religious assembly in the city. Membership is at about sixteen hundred, although a larger number attend every Sunday. Over a two or three week period, taking into consideration churchgoers who attended intermittently and attend various church activities, five thousand people may travel to the sanctuary on the hill. It is a church that has been without a head pastor since DeWitt left last year to become president of the Missionary Church Association. A new minister has been chosen and is expected to arrive July 25th. You might naturally expect a church to go through some, if not turmoil, at least some apprehension within its own self due to the fact for a while we didn't know we, when we would have a pastor, said Joe White, a parishioner and former member of the governing board. 
I feel that that is in the best interest of the church to lay this aside and not even bring it up as a part of public comment, he said. Right now that I think if you were to take the average person in the church, that person would say, I'm glad that this part is over. Let's forget it and go on with this business of evangelizing the world and not dwelling on things that have taken place in the past. I don't see the church as having been divided in any way, said Susan Huff, who regularly attends and was incensed enough about what happened to Michael to write a letter to the Star Free Press. Certainly attendance is not down, she said. Her comment was verified by one church official. This is not a close-knit group. This is a very large congregation. This is not a cult. This is a mainline congregation. My own personal faith in God does not depend on what happens to someone else in court or on the street or anywhere else. I just have to look to Christ and live from day to day, said Mrs. Huff. Church attorney Ron Harrington blasted District Attorney Bradbury for the way he publicly blamed the weakness in Michael's testimony for the failure of the murder case to proceed. I don't think it's right to publicly try and cast blame, he said. Suppose they did Suppose they did ever renew the case and wanted to rely on Mike's testimony. I don't know if that's supposed to say Michael's testimony. A press release like that is not very helpful. Pastor Michael is a friend of mine, said Judge Henson. I respect him highly and have no reason to question his integrity or reliability. It's a it's kind of bizarre case, all right. It felt a little bit like sympathy for Pastor Michael as I think of the number of people under these situations who have would have just told a person like Galsip who said something like that. Look, you just forgot you told me, you, you just, oh, wait a minute, this is really a nonsensical paragraph. Hang on. It is kind of a bizarre case, all right. I felt a little bit of sympathy for Pastor Michael as I think a number of people under those situations would have just told the person like Alsip, who said something like this, look, just forget you told me anything about this. That's still weird. I think he, Michael, felt compelled to make it known. I think I felt he was in a very difficult spot between the good Lord and the deep blue sea, said Henson. Hmm. I presume the only effect right now would be to perhaps relief for Don that he's not having to go through any more harassment on the stand, said White. I feel that the one who really was on trial here was Mr. Michael and that he had absolutely nothing to gain from testifying and he could have entirely withheld what he knew and never said beans, said Mrs. Huff. I find it difficult that anyone would knowingly subject themselves to this kind of treatment on the witness stand. Some parishioners feel that in the long run, what happened to Michael will make no difference in his ministries. Others say it can't help but alter his effectiveness. Some, like White, say the church as a whole will not be affected. People are going there to worship, said White. They're not going to decide whether they worship on the basis of whether or not there's been publicity of this nature in the newspaper. Others, like Mrs. Huff, disagree. I find myself looking at this whole thing and saying, well, it's very sad that this had to happen, because when the credibility of Michael is tied closely to the credibility of the church and his credibility is publicly attacked, the ability to serve the gospel and share the ministry is undermined. Now, interestingly enough, that is the last we're going to hear of the good Pastor Michael, this last article in the epilogue, but I went ahead and did a little Googling, and there is a history that's available at the Ventura Missionary Church. If you look up the church on Google and you look at the history of the church, I believe it is noteworthy that this man who served there for so long, at least five years, if not longer, is not mentioned at all. In fact, I suspect what 
Hannah Walt was saying about this guy and the fact that um, he just made shit up is true. And that he brought shame to this church and they do not speak of him. And I honestly, I'm pretty good at Google, but I know you guys are better, but I couldn't find any more about where he went, Don Michael. So I, I had put in Ventura, I put in 1980, of course, just to see where he might go, check normal places like LinkedIn, but pastors aren't usually on there. And certainly this, that's a, um, this millennium artifact. So that's not going to be a thing. But all you researchers out there who love doing this, see if you find any more scooper, if he ever appeared in a courtroom again. But they don't talk about him at the missionary church, is what I'm saying. So there's one epilogue. Here's another epilogue. Man acquitted in slaying can't pay bills. Greg Zoria, the former real estate, uh, this is November 18th in 1982. So now we're um, We've moved into the fall. Former real estate agent, once accused of one of Ventura's most notorious murders, is broke and unable to reimburse the state for nearly $50,000 in tax money provided to him for his legal defense. Joseph Alsip received that money during the six months he was in county jail and being prosecuted for the brutal murders of Lyman and Charlene Smith. He used it to pay costs for expert witnesses and investigators' fees. Alsop was freed in May after the district attorney dropped the case against him. Though he was freed of the criminal charges, it appears his ordeal has ruined him financially. This, my friends, is clearly something wrong with our system, that you can be bankrupted by this kind of thing, especially when, now he wasn't proven innocent, except now we know he is. I mean, we absolutely know he's innocent, but this this has got to be, this is, the, the ugly side of, of law and order, right? This is the part we don't like to talk about unless it happens to us or someone we love. And then it's horrifying as you watch your finances become uh, it uh, disappeared. Okay, Wednesday, Superior Court Judge Lawrence Storch ruled that Alsip did not have to pay the money back because of his financial condition. Storch had questioned Alsip about his current assets or lack of them in an effort to determine if there were legal grounds for reimbursement to the state. Storch learned that Alsip had lost his real estate license while in jail, had lost interest in all the properties once he was, in, he was once involved with, and is on the verge of filing personal bankruptcy. Even the lawyer who successfully represented Alsip in his defense against the murder charges, Richard Hanawalt, said he has received no money in his efforts. Hanawalt said he suffered a nut loss since he assumed an interest in some of Alsip's properties as payment and now finds himself embroiled in the same lawsuits aimed at Alsip and his business partners. <laughs> By the way, brilliant strategy. You want to have somebody help fight you for your money? <laughs> include a lawyer. Alsip told Storch he is currently working for his landlord to pay rent on his Ventura apartment. Alsip, who was eligible to receive funds from the state because of the crime was a capital case, one in which he could have been sentenced to death if convicted. Well, that's interesting because it was a capital case is why he was able to receive funds. And now I wonder, is that also true with D'Angelo? I will go find out. Okay, then another epilogue. So that's the epilogue of Joe Alsip's finances. They Once again, Ventura County Sarfi Press does the top stories of 1982. And the Smith case, first, number one was the economy. Number two was the election. So it's 1982. What's the election? That's off. That's not a presidential election. That's an interim election. Must have been a governor's election, maybe. The Smith case was number three. 
Oil Discoveries was number four, and the Simi Police, I don't know, was number five. Here's what they said about the Smith case. Um, it looked for a time in 1982 as if the murders of Lyman and Sh Charlene Smith might be solved, but it was not to be. The Smiths had been killed in 1980 as they slept with a bloody log found on their bed. Smith had been reportedly scheduled to be appointed as a judge. Months went by with no arrests until key testimony was um, alleged against Joe Alsip Jr. and he was uh, by Reverend Donald Michael and he and he was arrested and um, I'm sorry and made admissions about when he made admissions about his participation in the slayings. But at the preliminary hearing, defense attorney Richard Hanawalt was able to cast doubt on Michael's credibility. Alsop was ordered to help for trial at the conclusion of the hearing, but District Attorney Michael Bradbury decided not to proceed. He did not think the case was strong enough to take to trial, particularly in view of the serious impeachment of Michael's testimony. A jubilant Alsop was freed from the county jail. No other arrests have been made in the case. So there is the epilogue on the Starfree Press's coverage. And here is your Hannah Walt epilogue, Sunday, February 27, 1983, which is just par for the course. Here we go. You'll love this headline. Lawyer Hannah Walt finds self in need of defense. Ventura defense lawyer Richard Hannah Walt spends much of his time trying to keep his clients out of jail. Now he's trying to keep himself out of jail. Hannah was found, was found in contempt of court Friday in Santa Maria by Santa Barbara Superior Court Judge Royce Llewellyn after Llewellyn became upset with Hannah Walt's questioning of a prosecution witness. Unless the judge reverses his order, Hannah Walt will serve time in jail and pay a fine at the end of the trial. Hannah Walt is defending Edward Alvord of Lompoc, charged with shooting a gun at an occupied car. In court Friday, Hannah Walt was questioning the witness whose identification led to Alford's being ordered via letter to appear for trial in the case, Hanawalt said. Hanawalt challenged what he felt were discrepancies with the young man's identification of Alfred as the man who shot the gun. My client is a 300-pound biker with a ponytail. He was describing a 160-pound man, Hanawalt said. You can't make this up, guys. You just can't make this up. With Alfred outside the courtroom, the young man would show pictures of five men used in a lineup by police to identify Alfred as the suspect. Hanawalt claims that, because Alfred's picture was larger than the others, the lineup suggested he is the suspect. You can't do that, guys. We all know you can't do that. We've all watched enough Law and & Order and SVU to know you can't do that. You cannot bias that that array. The photo array. Could you please look at this photo array? The judge became quite upset with Hannah Walt's questioning, ordered him to his chambers, and told him he was in contempt of court for improperly asking questions. The prosecutor had not raised objections to his questioning, Hannah Walt said. <laughs> That's interesting, by the way. The prosecutor's not objecting, but the judge is. Yikes. I've got to get to the root of what then the hell caused my client to get a letter in the mail, Hannah Walt said. All I was doing was cross-examining. My role is asking questions. Hannah will be back in court on Sa in Santa Maria at 9.30 Tuesday. Hannah Walt said he does not know how much time or how large a fine he faces. In chambers, Hannah Walt said the judge said it would be five days in jail and a $500 fine. In court, Hannah Walt said the judge said it would be 48 hours. Another person later told him it would be only 24 hours. I don't think it's 48 hours or $500, Hanawalt said. That's the last statement he made. Oh, I'm sorry. I think it is 48 hours and $500, Hanawalt said. That's the last statement he made. Lord knows what he's going to say Tuesday morning. 
Contempt of court problems are nothing new for Hannah Walt. In 19, of course they're not. In 1973, Superior Court Judge Robert Shaw found him in contempt of court for being late. And last May, Municipal Court Judge Bruce Clark issued a bench warrant for Hannah Walt's arrest for contempt of court after attorney missed a preliminary hearing. He's, and there's your epilogue on Hannah Walt. And you can go Google him. He is still practicing. I put a link in the podcast last week about... Um, when, when we were talking about him and I said he was kind of odd looking, I put a link in there. So it's always in the descriptions for the podcast. So hopefully it's, it's a hot link and you can just press it and go. But he just kept going, guys. He kept going and he is everything that he ever was. And now we have our final, final epilogue, which is, of course, my family. What the heck's going on? What's going to happen with our murders? It is September 11th, 1983. Wow, a date that would be important in a few, in just, wow, in just a, in just a couple decades. Unsolved murders, gory puzzles with missing pieces. This is Pat Flynn writing this, so maybe Greg has moved on, not sure. The case of the 89-year-old former teacher stabbed to death in her bed may be solved soon. The three-and-a-half-year-old investigation into the bludgeoning deaths of the prominent attorney and his wife still turns up an occasional lead, but it would probably take revelation to solve the mysterious killing of the 63-year-old ice cream vendor and shot several times in the chest inside his combination business and residence. Ventura Police Sergeant Mike Goth, the detective who supervises investigations of homicides and other crimes against people, made those observations recently in a discussion of the city's most recent unsolved slayings. Of those three cases, two occurred in the past seven months. The other was in 1980. Going back farther, there are three unsolved slayings since 1970 on Ventura Police books and one case of a missing person who may have been murdered. Homicide's always your number one priority. That's the worst single thing you can do to an individual is kill them, Goth said. Presently, I don't have anyone working consistently on Smith. I still have one investigator spending 10 to 15% of his time on Boland. And detectives soon will get together with representatives of the district attorney's office to review their case against a suspect in the murder of Priscilla just time. Basically, we think we've got a case and the DA doesn't, Goth said, of that investigation. The Smith returned to by, referred to by Goth is the late Lyman Smith, an attorney who was reportedly in line for a superior court judgeship. Smith and his wife Charlene were found in their bed the afternoon of March 16th. Their skulls had been crushed with a log. Ted Boland, who sold ice cream and sweets off a truck, was shot in the chest February 13 outside his warehouse restaurant residence in on Palma Drive. Mrs. Justheim, a former music teacher who lived on Dunning Street for more than 50 years, was found stabbed to death in bed just after midnight. What the cases have in common is the detectives have not determined a clear motive in any of them. Otherwise, they're dissimilar. Each presents a different set of challenges to investigators. The Smith case from the start was a very difficult case to work, Goth said. He spoke in his office, its walls bare except for charts delineating the final hours of Boland and Justheim. Your hardest cases to work are the really high publicity cases. You've got a crime that went down in a relatively short, uh, relatively affluent neighborhood. Your victims are well known. And so it's a hard case because there's outside pressures pushing you. Not that you don't have them in all cases. And also the public expects you solve something like that right away. 
There are those in the police department and the district attorney's office who believe the Smith case was solved once. After a two-year investigation, <clears throat> police arrested Joseph Al- Alsip, a Ventura real estate ed- uh, and agent and former business partner. However, defense attorney Richard Hannibal discredited any key prosecution evidence during a preliminary hearing, and district attorney Michael Bradbury decided not to take the case to trial. After six months in jail, Alsip was set free. He was not However, Ben has been Ben ruled out as a suspect, Goth said. But there is no consensus about who did kill the Smiths. Among the personnel that have been involved in the case, everybody, the DA, DA's investigators, our people, there is some differences of opinion as to who the suspect may be. Boland, the ice cream man, moved in different circles than Smith, but he was well known in his own right. Basically, with Boland, it's a problem and an advantage that he was known with so many people because of his occupation. There's a lot of background to gather on him. Ted was in the ice cream business down in Pomona. He was the manager of a tropical ice cream of, of tropical ice cream in Oxnard for a couple or three years before he came over here. So there's just a lot of people you know to look into. We've found nothing in this line on Boland, but you always look back to see you know if someone's mad at him. Detectives have interviewed more than 150 people in connection with Boland's killing, but none of them can even remotely be considered suspect, Goth said. They have, however, eliminated some people from suspicion. We've about ruled out everybody who was close to him, Goth said. That includes his former wife, Fung, who lives in San Diego with their children. There are not as many people police could contact in connection with Mrs. Justheim. But we still talked to twenty to twenty-five to thirty people easily, Goth said. Mrs. Justheim shared her home with her son Charles, sixty-two, a cerebral palsy victim since birth. Justheim, a quadriplegic who now lives with his sister in Northern California, has always had attendants to help care for him. For the past eight or ten years or so, there had been a bunch of live-in attendants there. We talked to friends of the victim, people that have taken care of Charlie, relatives of the victim, Goth said. We went back three or four years after interview, interviewing those that have taken care of Just Time, Goth said, but we must have talked to seven or eight, he said. He noted there is a lot of turnover in that kind of work. Mrs. Just Time's case is clearly the closest to being solved. We've gone so far with Justin that the DA has a copy of everything, all the tapes and everything. We've identified a deputy DA that's looking at it. With Ted Bolin, we haven't talked to the DA's office. We've talked to them about some of the legal ramifications of the case, but since then we haven't talked to them. We can confidently say we are a hell of a lot thir- further along on just time than we are on Boland. And by the way, we're in the um, interior spread now of the um, paper, and there's a huge picture of uh, Dad and Charlene's house, the cool drawing that um, Martinez drew, drew of Lyman and Charlene, and the headline is, the Ventura police keep trying and usually they succeed. Goth has detectives putting in time every week on the Boland and Just Time cases. The Smith murders gets attention when time permits. What do they do at this point? When you get down to it, it really doesn't matter which case you're working. It applies to robberies. It applies to a lot of our sex crime. It amounts to the same thing over and over. Looking back on what you've done, seeing what you've done, re-reviewing it, re-talking to people. Every once in a while, however, the drudgery of pouring old evidence is left behind when a startling clue turns up. Paul Aaron Wolf is a murderer or a dead F-U-C-K, his conspirator, 
is his conspirator is a rabbit dead F murderer too. Lyman and Charlene Smith were good murder in their sleep restitution pleas. She was raped. This cryptic message was found scrawled on a trash can outside a convenience store at Laurel and Main Streets a month ago. <sighs> Paul Aaron Wolf, who once owned a kite shop in Ventura, has been linked by authorities to ALSIP. Let me try to read that note again because they put all this um, sick, you know, S-I-C, which means that's how he wrote it. So it really botched up this note. But let me, I wish they would have printed the note. Here, let me try it again. Here's what was found on this trash can. Paul Aaron Wolf is a murderer and a dead fuck. His conspirator is a rabbit dead fucking murderer too. Murderer, I think it's supposed to be murderer too. Lyman and Charlene Smith were good. Murder in their sleep. Restitution, please. She was raped. Okay, so I guess it's someone accusing Paul and Joe of doing this. <sighs> a dead, a rabbit dead. Okay. Wolf was arrested in Ventura a year ago on a warrant charging him with the, with the murder in Pennsylvania. He was questioned in connection with the Smith murders, but apparently was uncooperative and eventually was extradited to Pennsylvania where he was tried in the 1979 murder of a truck driver and acquitted. Local authorities had hoped that if Wolf were convicted in that trial, he might provide them with information on the Smith case in hope of a more lenient sentence in Pennsylvania. When the graffiti was reported to the police, Goth sent a detective to see it and photograph it, but what it means, he doesn't know. That's the damnedest thing, something out of the clear blue. It's something that I don't know why. It may even be evidence. It may not mean anything. How do you evaluate it? Goth said he and his investigators would like to talk to the author. If someone out there knows something, we'd like to talk to them, he said. A lot of it is just general curiosity. I'd like to talk to whoever wrote that on the can just to see what the hell they were doing. Of course, with our luck, it's some dingling that collects newspapers going through their collection who decided to go out there and make it public. I don't know. In their search of murder clues, detectives come to know the intimate details of the victims' lives, their habits, and their idiosyncrasies. It's part of the job, but can give an investigator a feeling of being uncomfortable, like a voyeur. That's the really spooky part about working the job, Goth said. He referred to the case of Judy Stewart, the woman who was convicted in February of murdering her infant daughter in a Ventura motel room. By the time we got through that investigation, we knew everything about that kid from the time she was born. It's the same thing with Ted, Mrs. Justheim, any of them. It's somebody you never met, but obviously it's somebody's mother, brother, uncle, best friend, stuff like that. After they're dead, you get to know everything about them. In a lot of ways, that's really spooky. There are cases where you get involved in an investigation like this and you don't finding out stuff, don't start finding out stuff. You don't want to know about it. I don't care. I don't want to know about it. But unfortunately, you have to dig into that stuff because it may affect your investigation somewhere down the road. While detectives continue to try to break the three most recent unsolved murder murders, other cases remain open and get little or no attention. Among them are these, and these are some Ventura cases. Lynn Marie Miller, 21, who was found by her husband stabbed to death in her Main Street home. The deeply religious young woman was nude and had been sexually molested. At one point, police, knew, police who kept the case shrouded in unusual secrecy for their search for the killer had been narrowed to three people, including two members of the Mueller's United Pentecostal Congregation, but no one was ever charged with the crime. James Leslie Steele, 49, of Oakview, was found beaten to death and stabbed, lying beneath the tree in the Buena Ventura Plaza. That's like a main park in Ventura. Just a, 
<clears throat> Wilson, 91, was found beaten to death in her Ventura home. Police arrested a man nearby, but he was released a short time later for lack of evidence. Cindy Lee Mellon, 19, of Ventura, was last seen as she left work at the Broadway store at the Buena Ventura Plaza. That was a mall. Last the, the night of January, 7, 19, January 20th, 1970. She is officially listed as a me- missing person, but poli- police believe she is probably dead. In another case, the 1981 stabbing of Cheryl Ann Hodges of Ventura, police obtained an arrest warrant for Gustavo Gomez, who shared an expensive West Ventura townhouse with her. He is believed to be in Colombia. Goss said there is no active effort to have him return to this country, and the case is considered to, by police to be closed. You'll find that in a homicide-type investigation, if you don't break it within a rel- relatively short period of time, four, five, six, seven days, then after that, you need a break somewhere. You need to find the key witness or that key piece of evidence. If we get a homicide, all of my people will work on it for at least the first week. And depending on where we're going and what it looks like and what else is happening in the city, then we'll start taking people off the case. But I generally have at least two people working a homicide for a month full time. Despite the attention unsolved slaying has tracked, statistics show that Ventura police solve most homicide cases in the city. Police records say there have been 42 homicide cases in Ventura since 1970, and of those, six are officially considered unsolved. In other words, police have solved 86% of them. We could make a pretty good living in the big leagues with a batting average like that, Goth said. And that is concludes our look back into the early 80s and what happened in Ventura. I think, I wonder, you know, I... I never really did talk to any of the police back then when they found out it was a serial killer. I know I was shocked, and of course it rippled through our family with shock and everybody else's as Orange County cold case put this stuff together. But I, I wonder for all these people who work so hard, and I and there are some people who absolutely kept on this case despite everything. They made it their personal mission to stay on the case and do what they could to keep asking questions, looking at evidence, thinking it through. Of course, serial killer, like we know, it's just not the thing you think of first. It's not where you go. So I wonder how it hit them and what what they experienced emotionally and intellectually when they found out that all be damned, Lyman and Charlene were killed by a serial killer. So that takes us out of history. We'll move forward with much more interesting interesting things now as we start to look at what's facing D'Angelo, the motions that have been filed, some interviews I have planned, and um, maybe eventually getting back to court and getting this asshat uh, convicted. I really, I, I just really do want him to be convicted of something, please, something. Thanks, you guys, for the follows. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.